Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. that music as we welcome in the morning. You're on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And I'm Fum. Hi, everyone. How are you? I am really good and I'm so excited because I just worked out that you and I have only ever been in this studio once before together. I know. It's really exciting. (laughs) I know. It's so good. Because of the way we mix up all the teams and everything, we we never get in the studio. So it's lovely to see you and to chat with you. It is indeed. On air. Big show today. But first, before we do that, we have to thank the, um, the, just the resilience of Tim. (laughs) I mean, Welcome after back. battling the plague, oh, no. there he is, and he's just, and he, you know, hey, it was brilliant. And then to finish up with a bit of Judith. Welcome back, Durham, Tim. I mean. Good to have you back. I know, it's brilliant. We love Tim. Tim is a national icon. <laughs> you know, the next time they do that thing where they're going to ask for stamps of Australian legends? Ah, that I would think be we're amazing. Gonna, let's, we're going to start a movement here. Oh, we should. We should have like all the iconic Triple R presenters with their faces on stamps. Yeah. <laughs> He's already got the, emo- you know, the what are they, like an emoji thing, you know, on the Triple R website. We could use that as the thing. <laughs> I love for it. For the icon. For- anyway, hey, you're on Radio Marinara. It's wonderful again. Uh, and Bron's coming back next week, speaking of, you know, people resilient from things. <laughs> yeah. um, so that'll be wonderful. It'll be great to see hear her back on air as well. But we've got a huge show today. Yeah, we do actually. Uh, lots of stuff coming on. Um, you want to kick off with the weather? Oh well, what, but first of all, the, what's we, let's forecast today's show. Ah. More with more spider crabs. Yes, more spider crabs. We'll be talking with uh, Dr. Elodie Compras. She'll be um, she'll be uh, calling in because she's actually had a visit to the uh, museum to look at yeah, some ancient spider crabs caught many many decades ago. I'm assuming um, to see what she could learn. So I'm oh, really excited. I'm really to looking catch up. forward to hearing that. It'd be mm-hmm. really interesting. She's really she's doing this whole detective thing, really, isn't she? Um, and then after that, Jazz Chambers is joining us. Jazz is the chair of Ocean Decade Australia, Ocean Decade Australia, and she went to the UN Ocean Conference. Have you been to a UN Ocean Conference? No. Oh, no. Just, ne- neither <laughs> it have sounds I. Huge. I'm a mess. Anyway, Jazz is going to tell us all this. She's going to give us like the colour and movement behind the scenes, as well as you know everything else happened. And then um, we're going to finish up. Uh, Wing Chan is going to join us from way up north. Talk to Wing Chan, who many years ago, or a couple of years ago, we spoke to about some experiments they were doing about um, heat-resistant symbionts, little algae that live inside coral. And they've got the results, so it's really interesting. Very exciting stuff. So big show, huge show, but let's go news or weather. Sorry, weather. Yeah, let's do weather first. So for Sunday, the 7th of August, we've got it partly cloudy today with a high chance of showers about the Dandenongs, but it's only going to be like zero to one millimetre. Do you kind of – okay, this is coming in, I felt like – this is such a Melbourne day. Yeah. Like, it's much. just so freaking grey. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it feels like it's going to drizzle any minute. It's just grey. It's kind of cold. Yeah, it is. Well, it's I August look, Melbourne. I, I looked outside this this morning and it was literally that. So, just like, not raining, but grey and cold. And there's like moisture <laughs> yeah, dripping yeah, from yeah, yeah. the trees and everything. All the, all the birds the are... The windows are foggy on the car. All the birds it's, are cranky. Yeah. yeah. It's a classic. Like, I just seriously, I thought, okay, if you love this stuff, you're going to love today. Because <laughs> it is just a Melbourne Absolutely. winter day. 
Well, thankfully, we only have to deal with uh, light winds today as well. <laughs> um, and for the tides, in Port Phillip Heads, the low tide will be at 11.44 a.m. today. And if you want to go uh, north of the bay for a snorkel or something like that, Bill Morris, the next high tide is at 9.25 a.m., so that's very soon. Ooh. And the next low after that will be at 2.49 p.m., so plan your snorkel accordingly. So you could choose to go for a snorkel on the high tide at the north end of the bay or listen to the latest on coral. How is that a choice? I don't know. It's That's hard, not a choice. actually. It's, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, let's just say, what do you reckon the temperatures? Have you been in recently? Oh, the bay? Yeah, it's about uh, No, I'm, I'm a wuss. I don't really yeah, me too. get in the bay in the winter. Well, it's probably somewhere between 10 and 12. Yeah, probably. At the minute. For mid- midwinter. Yeah. It's at its peak, low, lowest point. That's not the peak. That's actually the trough, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Hey, anyway, what, what else? Any, no, that's it in the weather, is it? Yeah, that's it yeah, for cool. the weather today. Hey, we've got a little um, – we always correct our mistakes. Oh, we do. Here on Triple R. We do. Actually, no, no, I am no. – I have never been as mm-hmm. happy – to correct the mistake okay, as I am today. Okay. So two weeks ago, we reported on that a uh, the Sunday Post uh, in Scotland uh, reported that uh, they, researchers had found that 90% of plankton had disappeared from the oceans. That was a really, really big claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't really not looking good. Um, but thankfully, the... It uh, turns associ- out it was wrong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what do you say? So the claim was actually debunked by the Associated Press. Um by their fact-checkers who spoke with other plankton scientists, including David Johns of the, get this, Continuous Plankton Recorder Survey Group. Continuous Plankton yeah. Recorder. So, okay, and I was just looking at the acronym. It doesn't spell it. No, like, no, but yeah. like this is what they do. They have been continuing, continually <laughs> recording plankton uh, over the last 70 years. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, in, in the, wow. Um, they've got over 20, uh, 250,000 samples. Goodness me. Uh, and he said that this survey had definitely seen changes in plankton species Mm. in Mm. response to climate change which means that cold loving species will move northwards and then warmer water plankton is taking their place so Mm. there's definitely the shift shift. like species shift yeah Yeah, but he said that if there were a 90 percent drop in plankton populations it would be immediately apparent to everyone because the whole food chain would would collapse like all the whales would die Um, but also he was probably able to then point to the data that shows there hasn't been yeah yeah yeah. so what he said was this is only you know this is only for like this particular area that were surveyed yeah, uh, yeah right. and he also said well, you know it really also depends on the time of day because plankton mm-hmm. moves mm-hmm. if you if up you want to catch plankton yep, you got to yep. go at night because they yep. go up into the to the surface and in the daytime they go down so there was a yeah it, there was a lot wrong with what was uh, being reported on uh, and, and yeah. here we are rec- and here it. we are and so you know here's another case for the needs of science communicators working for every news outlet yeah totally hey now speaking of species shifts there was mixed news this week from the Australian Institute of Marine Science. Um, they released their – it's annual, listen, I think. Yeah, it is. Their yeah. coral species kind of cover stuff. And the headline sounded like parts of the reef are bouncing back. And in terms of, of, of percentage cover, you know, as if you look down on it and how much you see covering the reef, yes, some of those areas that have been coral bleached had more coral back. So, the, you know, that the notion that, yes, maybe the reef is resilient if it has space between bleaching events and time and it doesn't get any hotter up there, blah, blah, blah. However, when you dive down into it, it turns out it's like the coral version of the weedy species, yeah. the acropora, <laughs> the branching one. 
that's taking over. So it's that's it's a species shift, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And so um, this this was research done by the Australian Institute for Marine Science in Townsville, and they do a report card of the Great Barrier Reef coral cover every year. Uh, so you know they say, oh, we rec- registered the highest level of coral cover, everything is recovering uh, because we had that mass bleach- bleaching yeah, event in well, March. We've had, like, yeah, and also we had so many so close together. In the yeah, last we few had years. like seven yeah, yeah. since the huge one in 2016, and so it. You know, like it looks great because everything is growing back. Uh, that also has to do with the fact that we haven't had many cyclones up there mm-hmm. and hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So uh, because Acropora, which is a yep. species that's growing back, is specifically, yeah, specifically um, really vulnerable to that. Um, but yeah, things are not as they seem because what is happening is that Acropora is a really fast growing species. And so yeah. as soon as things get busted up down there, that will be the first one to recolonize. Right. So... Are we really doing better if it actually decreases the biodiversity? Yeah. If the if the long lived corals die off and they get replaced by, by a the kind of and corpora is great, except it does have one other downside, and that it is the coral species that is most correlated with um, kind of thorn starfish outbreaks because yeah. it's, it's, it's the kind of one that they, it just happens to be the one that crowns of the crown of thorns kind of likes the most to get in amongst. And so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was really struggling with that news this week. I thought, hang on, I'm not convinced that leading out with – I think it's a good news element that, yes, you can get percentage cover recovery, but if you're getting a biodiversity drop and you're getting a species shift – um, to a species that's actually one that harbours the other major pest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, you kind of go, oh, I don't know whether this is good news. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly as you say. Like, is it good news? Is it really, really good news? And what we need to remember as well is this is just a snapshot from this yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah. So if we have a... You've if got to we look have at the a, over time. Yeah, if yeah. we get extreme weather again next yep. year, yep. hurricanes and cyclones, uh, then that acropora is going to suffer as well and, and we'll see a very different picture next, and next year. And it'll be the one that'll bounce back yeah. because we know that because <laughs> exactly. it's the weed. Yeah, so it, it is. It's really interesting. And we might... We'll, we'll touch on this whole how do you bring the reef through... Well, let's just hope we reach the Paris Agreement, so at least we won't lose it all. But you know, um, how do we bring the wreath through that? Even just that Paris Agreement yeah, stuff. Yeah, indeed. We'll talk and about that with Wing Chan and, and later that's, on. And that's also what what the what the researchers say from Ames. They said, look, you know, even 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 though this is happening really we still need to have immediate global action on climate change yeah. to to look after yeah, the reef yeah. and make sure it actually survives because this is just a snapshot. Um, now, on a completely separate issue, the ABC. The um, national broadcaster, Auntie, is running a a thing, a poll for Science Week. They do this every year, your favourite bird, your favourite whatever. This year it's your favourite tree. And I'm starting a movement (laughs) of marine coastal people because there are no marine trees per se, not real ones. No. The only one that comes close is the mangrove and the mangrove's in the top list of 25. Is it? And this week you've got to vote to get it down to a short list. So I'm suggesting that we all (laughs) mobilise our networks around the country. We've got to get a marine or coastal tree in. So there's coastal tea tree, there's moona in there, I think, and there's mangroves. But I'm saying let's go mangroves. Let's go mangroves. Let's get mangrove people in the top ten. If we, so, uh, <laughs> do you think if we rally every single Radio Marinara listener oh, today, we can get, get yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Come on, so 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 vote. You go on to the ABC um, website. You can't you can't miss it. ABC Science Week tree. You know, vote you know, favorite tree <laughs> yeah. or something. Google that. It'll come up. It's called the Grey Mangrove Avicenna Marina. 
Um, that, but it, it, it's, it's there. You can't miss it. We call it the kind of white mangrove down here, but it's the grey mangrove in the rest is of the that, country. Is that the same one that we have it's here? It's the one the we Bay? have here. Yeah, yeah it's cool. the only one. It's yeah. the only Victorian mangrove. So let's go for it. Mangroves, favourite tree. Come on, people. Yeah. They're not the prettiest looking things, but damn, they're important. Yeah, they really are. Super so, important. So here's some homework for you today. <laughs> oh, we should put the link on our Facebook page. We have. have you? already have. Great. Everyone get onto it and vote one mangrove. Radiotherapy, Sundays at 10am. Our team of irreverent, but fairly well qualified, medicos and experts shed light on all things health, medicine and well-being. Tune in to Radiotherapy via FM, digital, online, on demand or via the app. Indeed, you can you can you can join at the end of the show, and that is a I have a Pavlovian response to that um, particular um, intro because I think it's the end of our show. Yeah, you actually jumped in <laughs> your seat. If I'm going to test, I jumped backwards. <laughs> hey, you're on Radio Marinara, not on therapy. Um, thanks, guys. I love that cross promo right when it shouldn't when it, <laughs> it sets me <laughs> off. Um, you're on Radio Marinara, and we're chatting about lots of things before those car, those messages. We had um, we had obviously off the India with Treaty, and just the the text line. As we all know, we've got a text line here at Triple R. So 0466 0466 And thank you to whoever the anonymous person was that texted in saying when we talked about how these wonderful Melbourne days, how good are these days when you're snuggled up at home listening to all the Sunday morning shows on Triple R. It's the best and it's the best is in capitals. <laughs> so there you go. We love You've it too. you got to shout it out. Yeah. We love it. Over to you, Phil. Oh, so we are joined today by a regular guest on Radio Marinara, Dr. Elodie Compress from Deakin University, who we know is studying all things spider crab. Hi, Elodie. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. No worries. So I've been very excited because I was spying on your Facebook the other week <laughs> and I saw that you had a uh, visit to the museum to look at some uh, old spider crab specimens there. And uh, what what have you discovered? Why were you there and what was going on? Yeah, so um, as I've been saying in, in these interviews that I've been doing regularly, um, we know very little about spider crabs. So um, in the field this year, we collected some measurements. So we, um, you know, picked up spider crabs and looked at whether they were males and females and, and measured them. Um, but, and this data is great, but we're starting from scratch, right? There's nothing in the scientific literature to compare the data that we've collected to. So, um, yeah, I um, had access to the uh, collection at Museum Victoria so, yeah, I have to, to thank them for allowing me to uh, come and visit and actually look at the specimens that they have at the museum and, and measure them and, and, yeah, sex them so you know if they're male and female, what kind of size they were. And, uh, yeah, that was very exciting because, you know, it's data that's locked away in these little jars and that, you know, no one necessarily gets to see. And there's some very old specimens in there. Um, one of the most exciting one I found was uh, one that was taken on my birthday in 1910 <laughs> on the Endeavour. So, um, yeah, you know, all this, yeah, I took a lot of wow. photos of the specimens and, and measured them. So I haven't analyze the data just yet um but yeah it's, it's pretty much so we can understand more about spider crabs and you know see if there's 
any change. We obviously know that um, marine species in general, not just spider crabs, are under more and more pressure in, in the marine environment because of um, human activities. So getting that even basic data is, is really quite important. Yeah, it really is. And uh, this is another... Uh, really attesting to the the importance of museums and museum specimens as well, because, you know, I mean, there are drawers and drawers and drawers and cupboards full of stuff at museums, and you never know when you're going to need it until somebody starts studying spider crabs, finally, <laughs> and they come at handy. So, um, yeah, that, that's very exciting stuff. And I, I know that you, um, you measured some of the crabs in the bay, and, and did you discover that the males were bigger than the females? Is that correct? Yeah, so not by very much. It's a significant difference, but uh, only by about eight millimetres. So um, in the field, because we had limited time, we mostly measured the um, the carapace, so the shell, the length and the width of the shell. Uh, but at the museum, with a bit more time, I actually got to do measurements of the claws as well. And uh, interestingly, I... Again, I haven't formally analyzed it. This is just a kind of gut feeling by eyeballing the data, but it seems like actually the specimens that I accessed at the museum, males weren't necessarily bigger than females in terms of just the, the shell, you know, width and length, but it seems they have slightly bigger claws. So that's interesting. But again, we'll need to do formal analysis to, to uh, confirm all that. Do you, do, with those ones that you um, were looking through at the museum, I mean, just so intrigued by, you know, the collection. Do you know why it was collected at the time? Does it put a note on it saying we saw this mass aggregation and that's why we collected them? Or is it just a kind of a... <laughs> that would be convenient. Just, yeah, I know. <laughs> or is it just kind of like, oh, here's some stuff we collected? Yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. Mm. So the older specimens weren't necessarily collected because, you know, the museum staff at the time were looking for spider crabs per se, you know, it might be whatever they collected in, in trolls or things like that. Um, but, yeah, in, in more recent years, so they, they've been taken um, specimens at aggregation. So there was um, sampling, for example, in 2005 that was on an aggregation and that was... Um, yeah, so perhaps slightly different, but we've got to yeah go back at the data and look when when and where they were collected. But yeah, not of not all of them actually. I probably wouldn't be the majority that were collected as a result of trying to understand the aggregations. But you know, it's data that's still there because the specimens have been collected because they were pretty much documenting everything they could come across. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I, I kind of want to get into the museum thing. So, so you got you. Did you get in touch with them and 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 uh, the, was it just like kind of a bit of detective work and everything like oh yeah we've got these things down here and we haven't looked at them for ages and oh there's another jar oh there's another jar <laughs> or was it all just you know yes we know exactly where they are and they're organised and you know all that kind of stuff because I kind of imagine there's so much there but I guess it's all catalogued isn't it yeah yeah it is and um, so. I was lucky that I didn't have to sort of look around. Um, 
my visit was all planned and organised, and I want to thank uh, Melanie McKenzie for making it happen. So Melanie actually yeah, collected all the, the specimens, the photographs, specimens they had in one place and put them on a trolley, yeah, and cool. they were all arranged for me to have a look, and they were both, like, you know, dry specimens and uh, and specimens preserved in ethanol. So I had, yeah, access to both. And, yeah, it's a bit of detective work, and uh, actually, um, yeah, you, you know, you get to see... All sorts of different spider crabs from, you know, the tiny juvenile one to some massive adult ones and you get everything in between and it's all, you know, it's those specimens, some of them are very fragile. You need to be very careful when you take them out of jars and make sure you don't damage anything. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was a lot of fun and, um, yeah, I'm very glad that I got to access the collection. So, so you had, how many did you have? If you're saying like there were juvenile ones and, and big ones and they were preserved in all kinds of different mediums. Yeah, so I measured a bit less than a hundred, but they they were more than that, but uh, they were like tiny juvenile ones that I I didn't even bother measuring, you know, because they're just too small to really uh, manipulate, and some of them are pretty fragile, but... um, you know, it was, it was great to see them, like, see how they look. So I always, you know, had wondered before that, what a baby spider crab looks like, you know. And now we <laughs> <But> know. know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Elodie, uh, for coming on the so show cool. once again with an update. Uh, and we will catch up with you again soon, uh, hopefully maybe with some information about the tags and what's coming out of those. I wanted to ask about that, but we've run out of time. Um, so yeah. thank you so much, and we'll catch up again soon. Uh, that was Dr. Elodie Compress from Deakin University talking about all things spider crabs. Do you know what I love about this thing that, you know, with Elodie coming on really regularly, we are seeing science being done. Yeah, you know, we're, in well, real we're hearing time. It. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, love yeah. that, where this you can exactly. say, like, well, you know, we've we got to look for here, and we're going to do this, we're looking for that. We, yeah. we don't have the historical baseline. So we go to the museum, we find the baseline. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really and I love how it how it keeps evolving and, and different yeah. things start popping up as well. Jazz Chambers is an ocean advocate and the chair and co-founder of Ocean Decade Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation which has one client, the ocean. Now, last month, Jazz was in Portugal for the UN Oceans Conference, and she joins us live from somewhere in New South Wales to chat about what happens at those big meetings. Hey, good morning, Jazz, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning, and thanks so much for having me. I'm joining you from Gadigal Country. Oh, brilliant, today. brilliant. Hey, now, let's start with your organisation, Ocean Decade Australia. What is yeah. it? What does it do? So what we're doing is um, we're being radically inclusive, and uh, <laughs> we would like to have conversations about the ocean that include lots of different types of stakeholders. And uh, across Australia, there are, I mean, everyone from our perspective is a, an ocean stakeholder. Uh, your audience will know a lot about the ocean and what it supplies to us as humans uh, and to the planet. Um, and what we were seeking to do was to ensure that we were hearing from government absolutely, research absolutely, but also all those other users who don't usually talk to one another. So fishers, the energy sector, uh, recreational users, um, the youth voice, we are, we're all connected to the ocean in some way and we don't spend a lot of time talking to each other. So Ocean Decade Australia is about connecting uh, between those groups. Brilliant. And then, so how did Ocean Decade Australia end up in Lisbon at the UN (laughs) Oceans Conference? 
Yeah, the road to Lisbon. Um, <laughs> so, so to do something like that, uh, I mean, we, as, as you uh, said, we're a not-for-profit uh, mm. charitable organisation. And so to go along to a conference uh, like UNOC, the UN Ocean Conference... Oh, OK, that's the acronym, is it? UNOC. OK, we we'll call yep. it UNOC. UNOC 22. OK. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you do need to get accredited okay. as an organisation. So if you're not a government body uh, or, you know, the Prime Minister or the Minister, etc., then you need to uh, find yourself accreditation, which we were able to do. So we applied to that through the United Nations process. Um, this was an, a, a, an event that was put on by UNESCO, which is a big part of uh, the United Nations. So we applied for accreditation. We received it. We have to. You have to be invited then to actually attend. Send along the biographies of the people who um, you would like to send, and small organisations like ours could have up to three people okay. uh, apply. So that's and so we received the invitation and and booked our tickets. Yeah. And so now I've never been to a, to a UNOC to mm. a UN Oceans Conference, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm sure many of our listeners haven't either. And so tell us, like, what happens? Is it big? Is it like I just imagine this? thousands of people what happens in the background what's the color and movement yeah it's it is amazing uh and it, it is it was very big so lisbon um actually hosted uh you know parts of the ocean there's there's a big portugal is a, a seafaring nation mm-hmm. and uh so this was fifteen thousand or so people i think is the official count but wow. there were there were thousands of people involved in the event and it's kind of like a a nerdy ocean music festival, um, if you like. Um, and so you've got everyone there from, uh, of course, political leaders. There were over 20 uh, heads of state who attended. Um, and then through to the, the literally youth uh, voices were there having kind of raves and uh, protests and activism. So the whole spectrum is there. Awesome. Uh, a lot of research and scientific people as well as people who are, you know, changing their businesses into businesses that are hopefully better for the ocean and good for the ocean. Uh, so 15,000 people. And there's many conferences within the conference. So there's the official conference and then there's all this other stuff that's going on around it. So is it like, it seems like you'd have to kind of plan it like a tactical mission. Oh, you would. You, know, you would like need you... the program and yeah. like book your Ubers beforehand. And, yeah. <laughs> what did you do? Did you do it like that? Was it kind of like, right, we go there with a goal and we're going to get to as many raves as we can or, or we're going to get to as many? Yeah, well, no, we... Ace bracket. Um, so uh, we we were strategic. You do have to be strategic. You can just show yeah, up yeah. to these things yeah. and, uh, and wander around, and, and that in and of itself, you'll learn a lot. Uh, we had specific people that we wanted to meet with and see, and that was what was quite extraordinary, particularly after a couple of years of you know not being able to network in that way. Mm-hmm. So for us. Uh, the, don't plan to sleep when you go to something like this. Um, you've got to be ready and willing to just jump in and go to the reception on this or that. I had It, it is the unintended, unplanned uh, activities huh. that occur around the strategic meetings you're having. Um, oh, come, come to this reception and then, you know, you're meeting amazing 
people and hearing very different perspectives. This is yeah. really what it's all about. And that, that's in, so that's really interesting because I, I, I mean I did see a lot of stuff come out during it. You know, around, you know, mm. and there were some of the topics that you know I kind of oh yeah I expected that to be covered and I expected that to be covered. Um, what? But there was also some things that stood out for me that I didn't expect to be covered and that that seemed to feature more than I recalled. And I, I the one for me that was a really interesting issue was the C4 mining stuff. Um, mm. And did, did, did was that a theme that you picked up on? Yeah, so so there were many amazing themes. Um, a big one is the Treaty on Plastic Pollution, mm-hmm. which people will have heard of. But deep sea mining was a, a very hot topic, a very emotional topic, um, which for largely a scientific meeting um, uh, is an interesting aspect. And and it's something I would encourage your listeners to go and read about. Uh, you know, what is this deep sea mining? Um, it, there are three stages. I learnt a lot uh, from the sessions that I attended, uh, but it moves from prospecting to exploration to exploitation. And the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, are sort of responsible for ensuring that there are, you know, ways, regulations around governing what is a pretty controversial industry. So it's worth reading about. Um, we, you know, we're surrounded by ocean in our island continent, and it's a big conversation right now in the Pacific. And Chaz, is was were there Australian representatives in that meeting about the deep sea mining? Is that something there, that there Australia is is invo- wants to be involved in or is involved in? I, I wouldn't say we want to be involved in it um, officially. I would say that we're absolutely sitting there and listening to the perspectives around it, um, and that's. And, and, and you need to go and listen to how other nations feel about um, deep sea mining. Uh, so, so for some, um, you know, it's an opportunity for their nations, uh, and for others, they're completely against it. Um, so, yes, absolutely, Australians were sitting in and listening to a lot of these conversations. We are a member state of the ISA, the International Seabed Authority. So, we, you know, we. We sit around that table, uh, and and as I say, it's a very controversial um, conversation at the moment. And there's there's different perspectives which it's worth listening to. So, mm. uh, as I say, um, something to definitely um, find out more about. Yeah, definitely keep an eye on that. Also, there is a seabed authority. That's I know. The first we're thing. gonna. You know, it's funny. <laughs> Fum and I, as soon as you said that, Jazz, <laughs> Fum and I looked at each other and we thought we're gonna we're gonna do a, a future show about yeah. this international seabed authority. It sounds so intriguing. Well, I want to know all about this now. Um, Jazz, oh, was yeah. there a, w- what what was something about the conference? Like, what was your highlight? Was there anything that you were like, wow, that was really unexpected, or that really stood out for me? Mm, I think um, the a big part of the conversation is also around cultural heritage and intergenerational responsibility uh, and just this idea around equitable access to the ocean. It's something that we might take for granted in our country. There's probably not a lot of Australians who haven't, you know, been to the ocean. There will definitely be some. Mm. Um, and if you start thinking about that, about the, you know, that there's a lot of people across the world who maybe have never seen the ocean, touched it, swam in it, um, but may be very reliant on mm. on it for food. Uh, this is something that, yeah, to keep getting your head around that kind of um, uh, concept, that's a really important thing. But the value of ocean culturally, 
I think is is one to really that 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 was one that I'm still unpicking that myself and trying to understand that. Um, but there was a lot of conversation about this intergenerational responsibility and the uh, you know we. We, talk, we often talk about in terms of generations of people, like our grand, our grandchildren, you know, making sure this is okay for our grandchildren. Yeah. But what about that seven generations from yeah, your grandchildren, people yeah, you'll never meet? Yeah. It's so interesting, and it kind of builds on something. Just to kind of, we're nearly out of time, so I'll probably have to make this the mm. last question. But the, the, there was, it seems to me along those lines, there was a lot of conversation about diversity of voices, yeah. and you mm. being, as you already said at the start, about promoting radical inclusivity. Mm. Did you have any reflections on how successful the UN Ocean Conference was at doing that? On some, mm. you know, I mean, I know there's different, you know, axes of diversity, um, but is there is anything that jumped to mind for you? Yeah, thanks. Um, look, I think for me, this idea of inclusivity—where are these? You know, where are the other voices and so forth? The reality is, the tables at um, conferences like these, the official tables, which is mm. why it's important to know about all those agencies and um, commissions. Uh, there are only so many seats at those tables. Um, growing the table is probably not, uh, you know, I mean, you can't have everyone. Um, and so if we truly are after diversity, you know, Indigenous voices, young people, more senior women, those were the three mm -hmm. groups that really kept coming up, uh, then, you know, we're going to need to change who's sitting in the seats. And when you look around the seats, quite frankly, you know, you would think that we haven't we haven't been successful here. So I'm going to go going out on a limb. To I'm going to go out on a limb here, Jazz, and I'm going to say Come what in. I think. What I think you're not saying is that the table is full of people like me, middle-aged white blokes. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, and you said it, yeah, I yeah. think, uh, yeah, maybe just stand yeah. up. Maybe half of us need to stand up and hand the chair to someone else. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's in your gift to do so. No, so, it's spot yeah. on. And I, I think that's, yeah, it's such an important thing and I think that it's a really valuable lesson for for senior leaders to actually think about their personal leadership in that space and mm -hmm. to stand aside. Maybe they won't give up their seat for every meeting, but they might want to, you know, step aside for some of them. Yeah. Hey, Jazz, um, a wonderfully diverse conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jazz Chambers, who's the chair of Ocean Decade Australia and um, was one of the, it turns out to be quite a number of Australians who were in Lisbon. Yeah, um, there's there were lots of them over there, um, and and I did separately have a hear a conversation with Jazz where she was saying that some nations coordinate their input, you know, yeah, so they have a bigger impact, a bigger footprint. Australia's not one of them yet, <laughs> but next time, hey, I'm go I'm I was going to ask if I could carry her bags next time. <laughs> I'd love to go. It sounds like, I mean, imagine that. I know. out at a 15,000 15, person. 15,000 people on this conference, yeah. It's a kind of ocean music festival. Dr Wing Chan is a research fellow in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. But he's joining us live from far north Queensland in Cairns, near one of her field sites, in her last interview, which was way back in 2020. Wing spoke about the possibility of developing heat-evolved algal symbionts, you know, the algae that lives inside coral, to help coral survive a warming ocean. They finished the experiments. Oh, and she joined us to spill the beans on the results. Welcome back, Wing, and thanks for joining from, well, Cairns. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for having me again. Oh, you're welcome. I bet it's about, what, 25 degrees and warm up there, is it? 
It is very nice. <laughs> oh, can we please not talk about that? <laughs> okay, oh, let's move too on. depressing. Hey, now, in a week where we heard mixed news about coral cover in the Great Barrier Reef and species shifts, etc., how did your experiments go? Can we actually evolve heat resistance in the little algae that live inside coral that might actually slow down coral bleaching? So the experiment finally finished after two years. That was a bit of time taken because the lockdown would stop again, start again, stop again. But yeah. um, we finally have everything done, and uh, it was the result was actually really exciting. Oh, good. So previously, out from our research team, the heat evolved algal symbiont has been developed. So for those of you maybe wasn't in the last episode, coral is a really fascinating organism is an animal but it also forms symbiosis with a microalgae that live inside the body. This algae is densely packed within the collar, so we're talking about a million cell per centimeter square of coral tissue. Me. Whoa. Yeah. Densely packed and they translocate about ninety percent need up to ninety percent of energy requirement of the coral. So they're critically important and that's the reason why we want to target them to develop heat resistance on this algae and then introduce it to the coral and maybe that will help coral to survive through ocean warming. So last time when we spoke and that's the idea. I love and the way that you're drawing out the suspense of telling us we didn't work. <laughs> And so far, based on the species we work with, yes, and of course, this oh. is, you know, their first study. So yeah, what yeah. we did, we collected coral, we used a chemical called menthol to remove the algal symbionts from the coral. And then we introduced it with the different variety of these algal symbionts, including the heat evolved one that we yeah. developed in the lab and the normal wild type that we never evolved. And then we put the coral through a temperature challenge so put them through a higher degree at 31 degrees which is oh, wow. pretty hot for yeah. and but that's simulating what is forecast to happen in the future so and we look at the response of this color so um it was really exciting the outcome we can see the color with heavy for um algae and we confirmed that with sequencing and know that's for sure and yeah. that there was no mortality actually in the eight day that they were under a high temperature huh so they didn't throw um, out the heat-resistant ones like, the, uh, like the, they would with the other ones? They didn't. So we have looked at the community, or the, the algal community, by sequencing. So after eight days under high temperature, the this heat evolved that microalgae are still there. The color itself survived, so there was no mortality. Wow. There was no change in photochemical efficiency, and there was no bleaching. You can look at the color that lovely and healthy. And so what, I mean, I guess the... the I mean, I guess I hadn't realised, of course, the first step is to know whether they'll retain them, whether they want to actually keep them. So not only did they keep them in, these new heat-resistant ones, they, not, they kept them in, but they also didn't die. They didn't throw them out and they, and they lived. It just, do you look at that thing long-term to yeah, see whether absolutely. it kind of lasts longer than a couple of weeks? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first that um, is really just a thermal challenge, and we compare that with the coral that we inoculated and associate with the wild type uh, algae as well, so those that never evolved, so that we have a control. And those ones behave differently because there were mortality under high temperature, they were photosynthesizing less, and yeah. there was a, uh, the algae being kicked out. There's actually almost 90% of the algal symbiont being wow. kicked out or being lost during this uh, high temperature event. So there was some, there was definitely some treatment event here for the fact that they have heat evolved algal symbiont. Wow. And, and looking at... 
Sorry? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was just wondering, like, is, is this for one species of coral? Is it that the microalgae are specific to one species of, species of coral? Or is this kind of like a uh, general species that many different types of corals will take up and live with? That's a good question. So uh, currently there are about 15 different genera of this microalgae being described, and there are many more species, of course, hundreds more. And the the genus that we focus on is uh, what we call Cardocopium. It's a species that very commonly occur in the Great Barrier Reef and also Mm. in other reefs as well. Uh, Of course, this this research is starting on one particular uh, genus. Um, Our PhD student at the moment is working on developing uh, Hedifold-Algosimbon and other genera as well. So, and also looking at the S and to say long-term stability. So, what, how this imbalance is going to be like in one year's time? Do they still retain this hedgehog mm. microsimbion? And test that with different species as well, because they might behave differently. Have to test that in the field as well, because this is a laboratory experiment yeah. and out in the reef, everything can be different. So, this is kind of this early so steps in yeah, that, yeah. but. But it's the first, it's it, it's, yeah, it seems to me when it's the first critical steps, you know, it's like if we, okay, right, we got over that massive hurdle, now we've got a whole lot of other questions, I mean, like all science. The the, the question I'm interested in is if you do this in the field, what do you, what do, you do? Are you going to, like, go up to coral and inject them with it? Like, how do you get it into them? <laughs> Very good question. There are different ways that we can possibly do that, like the easiest for start that the coral can be inoculated in the lab and bring it back to the reef and mm. let them grow over there. Other way they can uh, possibly deploy that is just to deploy the algae from the boat or using underwater robots, so target for specific reefs that say they've been bleached and then spray it along the reef. Wow. <laughs> You're spraying then, the algae on the, onto the corals, so cool. onto the reef. That's awesome. And let them to pick up this uh, symbol. And this is not a science fiction because we already know that underwater robot has been developed and they've been used to deploy coral larvae in the reef already uh, successfully. Wow. So it can potentially be adapted to that. Of course, it's some years later by the time we have to test, you know, all these different things. But it's a possibility. That's um, fantastic. Another way will be through coral larvae, as we uh, we've just spoken about. Coral larvae has been successfully deployed to the reef. We can actually first inoculate coral larvae with this Heliforce algal symbionts and then deploy the coral larvae to the reef. So you're seeding the reef with already with the Heliforce algal symbionts in that, and hopefully uh, these larvae survive better under warming ocean conditions. Oh, this is so fascinating. We've run out of time. I have Wings. a million more I know. questions. We're going to have to get you on again. Maybe come into the studio when you're back in Melbourne after your you know, warm sojourn up north. Um, Dr Wing Chan, thank you so much for joining us this morning from far north Queensland. That was fascinating. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wing Chan from the University of Melbourne in far north Queensland at the minute in the wonderful tropical north at a conference actually doing talking about coral. Doing some amazing work. Extraordinary. That whole lab does some extraordinary work. Um, and, you know, let, let's be clear, um, if we hit Paris, we still need the work they're doing. We do. So, you know, that's, that's really important. Thank you so much to our guests today. Thank you to Elodie Compras. Thank you to Jazz Chambers. Thank you to Wing Chan. Um, thank you, Fum. Thank you, Anne. It's been such fun being in the studio with you, and we're going to find out about the International Seabed Authority. Stay tuned. <laughs> You're on Radio Marinara. Here come the doctors. See ya. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.